Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey guys, Ryan here. The Somewhere in the Skies podcast is a labor of love every week. And with that comes many different costs to keep the show running. That's where our Patreon campaign comes in. You give what you think the show is worth. There's different rewards available all the time, including shoutouts on the show, early editions of main episodes, bonus episodes and content, and very soon, monthly patron hangouts, where we sit back and chat all things UFOs. So I hope you'll consider becoming a Patreon subscriber today. To learn more and to join, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support and keep looking up. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Welcome, everyone, to Somewhere in the Skies. I am your host, Ryan Sprague, and I have been waiting a very long time to connect with who we'll be speaking to with today, and that is Philip Mantle. He is one of my favorite UFO researchers over in the UK. He has done everything from investigating UFO crashes, landings, close encounters, the alien autopsy as well, which we'll have to talk to him about on another episode. But today we're here to talk about his new book, and that is UFO Landings UK. Now, a lot of people know the Rendlesham Forest incident, uh, you know, the Roswell crash here in the United States, but the UK has a very rich history with UFO landings, uh, a rich history that I was not fully aware of until I looked at this huge compilation that Philip has brought to us in the form of his book. So without further ado, I'm going to bring him in for the very first time to Somewhere in the Skies. Philip, welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. Oh, my pleasure. Good evening, Ryan. Good evening. Yeah, it's just turning noon over here in the States. So I got to thank you for, for spending your night with me here uh, to talk all about your, you, your new book. Uh, but, you know, before we do that, before we talk landings, I always have to ask first-time guests, for those who may not be familiar with you, with your work, the quintessential origin story. How did you get involved with UFOs? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that one that you're probably used to answering. Uh, yeah, it's, let's it's a long, long time ago, Ryan. I mean, when I was you know, a, a young fella at high school, I had three or four interests. I mean, I'd always had an interest in all things paranormal. I mean, literally. And I was also interested in the space race at that time um, and um, horror movies. But the paranormal was was top of the list. And I, I, I was fortunate in some respects that uh, literally 
the other side of the street from where I lived, my best friend's grandmother uh, lived there. And she used to go to a, a local spiritualist church. So uh, I tagged along a few times. I've just found it fascinating. I, I didn't necessarily believe everything they were saying, but it, I still found it fascinating. Uh, I was interested in the space race and astronomy, and I read uh, one astronomy book. I can't remember the title of it all these years later, but it had one chapter in it about UFOs. And it basically dismissed the subject, uh, which I found rather odd, to be honest, Ryan, because elsewhere in this book, there was lots of theoretical things about, you know, astronomy. Uh, and I thought, well, you can theorize about astronomical uh, phenomena, but you don't accept the UFO phenomena. I found it peculiar. Um, but nonetheless, that, that sparked the interest. So I left high school at the age of 16 with no qualifications, didn't know what I was going to do with myself. Um, but this, this interest was, was there. So I, I read what I could about it, which wasn't a lot you could get your hands on in those days. Um, and then in, in late 1978, uh, I went to work in what was then West Germany over the winter. Um, I, I worked there couldn't speak a word of the language. So I phoned my mother and said, can you send me some books? I can sit down on an evening. I, you know, I can sit and watch the TV, but I can't understand it, you know? So she sent me a box of books and lo and behold, every single one were UFO books. I don't know where she got them from. So I would sit there on an evening and read away. So when I returned home in, you know, I think it was March, 1979 i was i was i had a bit more uh, information if you like then of course the spielberg movie close encounters came out and i went and watched that and i used to live then uh, about five miles from the city of leeds in west yorkshire which is in the north of england mm -hmm. and leeds then as it does now um, publishes an evening newspaper it's called the yorkshire evening post now, just around the corner from where I live, my aunt used to live, and she used to obtain a copy of this every night, and she brought it around one night, Ryan, and pointed to an advertisement in it. Coming up that Sunday was the first ever meeting of the Yorkshire UFO Society in Leeds. Now, in, 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 in this period of time in, in the UK, on a Sunday, everything used to close. I mean, literally everything. So I caught the bus. I didn't drive in those days. I caught the bus into Leeds. The location was a place called Centenary House, North Street, Leeds. In I goes. I find the room that hired a room in one in this building. And there was about 20 or 30 people there. Uh, great to see a pile of books for sale. That, that, that pleased me. <laughs> now, the Yorkshire UFO Society was formed by two brothers. And that is Graham and Mark Birdsell. And they'd obviously been involved in the subject for a few years. They put on a presentation, Ryan, and, you know, that was me. Uh, I felt, you know, I, I was home. I, felt, I found my niche in life. I just wanted to know more. Uh, Graham, of course, went on several, some years later to successfully edit and publish UFO magazine here in the UK, it sold in its tens of thousands. It was a newsstand magazine. Sadly, he died, you know, uh, unexpectedly a few years back. 
But nonetheless, I've, I felt this is it. So I actually joined the Yorkshire UFO Society. I think I paid £2 for the whole year. And we used to have monthly meetings. And by the time, you know, the, the fourth or fifth meeting, now you know, I were ready to jump in with both feet. And and that's how it all started. That it, had it had had it not been for that advertisement in the Yorkshire Evening Post, I would never have known about this society starting. But I, I for me, it was the right place at the right time with the right people. I just felt very fortunate. Wow. I see. I love hearing those those stories. You know, many people have a sighting. That's what gets them interested. Or like you, it's complete happenstance. I recall Stanton Friedman even saying he accidentally, I believe, re, uh, received a book in the mail about UFOs, flying saucers, and yeah. it changed his life. He was. Well, that's, that's I mean, it. That, that advertisement <laughs> in the Yorkshire Evening Post changed my life, uh, right. you know. And uh, I, I'm, I'm forever grateful for it, you know, because where I lived was a small town. You know, there wasn't much happening, wasn't a great deal to do. Leeds was a nice enough city, still is. But, um, I, you know, I had no formal education. The high school I went to was absolutely hopeless. But I I always had this this thirst for knowledge. I'll give you an example. At high school, We it wasn't a, a church school, but one, once a week we used to have um, – R.I., we call it, religious instruction. So we were taught that what was in the Bible was verbatim, and this is it. And well, it's only one lesson a week. And I was always the idiot at the back of the room would put his hand up and, <laughs> you know, I don't think this is this can't be right, you know. And so I, I think around about the same period, it had literally sat down one, you know, every night and read a bit of the Bible until I'd finished it. So I thought, if I'm going to get in trouble, at least I want to know what I'm getting in trouble for, you know. Right. So I always wanted to understand things. I wasn't just, I wasn't, I wasn't happy just sat there letting other people tell me what was going on. And um, you know that continued when I joined the Yorkshire UFO Society. Amazing. Question yep. everything. Question yep. everything. Well, okay. So you know, throughout the years, decades, you've researched. Uh, many, many cases. You've investigated some personally as well. Um, and that kind of culminated into one of many of your books. But the one we'll be talking about today is UFO Landings UK. Like I mentioned, there have been so many that I was not aware of. We know yeah. the pinnacle cases, the Rendlesham's and whatnot. Um, uh, even Broadhaven, a lot of people are familiar with that one. But your book has hundreds upon hundreds. So before we even talk about some of the cases, Philip, where did these come from? How did you obtain these files, that's, these that's stories? That's a good question because, you know, when we started, Ryan, there was no internet. Right, there was right. no online service. So when you try to you know, research cases, you either did it in person, I mean, literally in person, you or you would write, the, you know, the old-fashioned way, you would uh, write a letter or phone someone. I mean, these were about the only ways you could contact people. We were fortunate when I joined the Yorkshire UFO Society, as it went into the 1980s, there is a, a national park in North Yorkshire, it's called the Yorkshire Dales, I'd recommend every American tourist to head there. It's a beautiful part of the world. And yes, I am biased, but um, it's the, it's, it's the, the part of the world that parts of it where, where the Bronte sisters wrote Wuthering Heights and so on. 
But areas in and around the market town of Skipton in the Yorkshire Dales, for whatever reason, Ryan, had a lot of sightings uh, being reported. And this is, you know, a lot of it is what we call semi-rural. Uh, when you leave the town, there are no cities. When you leave the towns, there's, there's villages, there's moors, uh, especially one place called Carlton Moor, just outside of Skipton. Uh, it's heather. There are no livestock kept there. They, they do game bird shooting there, but that's about it. And we made it our purpose to make ourselves as visible as possible. We would leave our contact details with local police stations, you know, libraries, even put posters up in some of the local pubs. And one of the things when people contacted, one of the things we used to ask is, how have you found us? You know, have you found our address or our phone number? So we, we, we knew what was working. So there was a time in the early 1980s that we were, you know, bombarded with sightings from these areas uh, and couldn't couldn't cope at times almost. So, you know, I, I think I, I joined ufology at the right time. I, I joined with the right people, Mark and Graham Birdsell, uh, and uh, we were just fortunate that there was a lot of things happening for us to get our teeth into. And um, and off we went, and we were up and running. Uh, you know, I learned to drive, got my own transport, and there was no stopping us. Uh, it was as simple as that, and, and we made ourselves very, very visible. And we do lots of local lectures. I mean, we do the Women's Institute. You, I mean, you name it, just mm -hmm. to get the word out that here we were. And and, and that's how, we, how our information started to be gathered. Interesting. Now, um, I recall in the book, you had mentioned in the introduction that you had personally investigated one of these UFO landings. Is that mm. true? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. once uh, once we got up and running, um, the area that I lived in was was covered by a, a, another newspaper. It was called the Wakefield Express. I'm sure you've all read it. <laughs> but, I got it right on my uh, yeah, my coffee table. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I did a local feature in it. You know, make you stand there holding your camera, looking stupid. You know, but they ran my phone number, and we had a lady call us, um, just a local lady. And she said, Philip, you won't believe me. You won't believe me. I said, well, give us a chance. No, you won't believe me. You won't believe me. Now, the area that I lived in um, was an industrial area, uh, mainly coal mines. My father worked down the mines all his life. Um, and this lady only lived a few miles away. She lived in a town called Normanton in West Yorkshire. And that was a coal mining town uh, at that point in the history. The mines have all gone now, but so myself and Mark Birdsell went to see this lady. She called Mrs. Westerman. Now, Mrs. Westerman lived in a, a cul-de-sac and there, there was no houses opposite. And her house uh, was a terraced house, but it was an what we call an elevated house. So you walked up some steps to get into the, to the front door. At the bottom of the road, at the end of the cul-de-sac, were some trees, some fields, and some electricity pylons that went to the came from the nearby uh, power station at Ferrybridge. Now she had several children. It was about five of them, and it was just after lunch, and they were outside playing a ball game. It was a beautiful sunny day, and uh, it was a made-up ball game. It's the same kind of thing I played when I was their age, and she was actually washing the dishes after lunch, 
And one of the children came running in and said, Mum, Mum, there's an airplane crashed in the field. So she came out the front door, and because it's an elevated house, Brian, she could actually see from her front door across these fields. She said, Philip, it wasn't any airplane. It was something shaped like a, a Mexican hat, but like a silver gray in color on the ground. So she got hold of the children. They walked down to the bottom of the cul-de-sac through the trees. Now, at one point, you go down a little dip, so you lose sight of the field above you. So she, they walked up the other side, and this field was bordered by a small fence. This thing is sat there on the ground, but now there are three tall men, all wearing white suits. They had some kind of visor over their face. Uh, she was that close, she could say, they didn't have gloves on. They had They had mittens. And they were waving something over the ground. Uh, one of the children tried to climb the fence, so but she held him back. And at this point, these three beings walked to the back of this thing. It then rose up, stopped in the air, and bump, was gone whence it came in a flash. No noise, you know, nothing. So she went home, and she sat down that night to watch the local TV news. So it's it's going to be on the TV. It's bound to be. There's a major motorway passes Normanton. It's called the M62. Thousands of cars go by. It was a beautiful sunny day. Lots of people out and about. Not a thing. I mean, nothing. She bought the local newspaper. Nothing. She even went and asked some of her neighbors if they'd seen anything. Uh, and not not a thing at all. Now, we, Mark and I interviewed Mrs. Westerman. We interviewed all the children. They didn't call it a spaceship or aliens. And they just said these these tall men. You know, this funny-shaped thing. We even interviewed one of the children's friends. He hadn't seen anything, but he'd gone home for lunch. And when he came back, you know, everything was over with, and he was a bit a bit, a bit upset because he missed it all. <laughs> you know, he missed the excitement. Right. And she was mystified. I mean, she was perplexed by what she saw in the first place, but she was even more perplexed by the fact that no one else seemed to have seen anything. And and she couldn't get that out of her head. Like I said, she lived in a mining town, kind of people I grew up with all my life. We couldn't find any logical explanation for this um, this sighting, and we did try. Um, so she was either lying or telling the truth, and I could find no reason why she would be lying. She didn't want any publicity. Wouldn't allow a photograph to be taken. We wrote the article, this item up in our in our uh, our own publication that we that we made at the time but we didn't we weren't even allowed to use her name and what's what's peculiar a couple of years back i did a podcast for someone and i told th this story but i just forgot to use the lady's name it's mrs westerman i thought well, i just forgot and i got an email from a uh, a lady in new zealand and she said philip you know i used to live in normanton I've now immigrated to New Zealand. Um, what was the, the lady's name? And I said, it was Mrs. Westerman. She says, my best friend was called Westerman. And she still lives there, but she's changed her name because she's got married. So she emailed her friend, and her friend was one of those children we interviewed all them years ago. Oh, wow. And I got in touch with her, and she confirmed, you know, what, what she remembered. And uh, 
but still, you know, it it seems almost, Ryan, that you had to be in that place at that time to have experienced this. Oh, you know, I, I'm just saying that it's just, just, just an opinion of mine. But even all these years later, we were, you know, these, the children now grown up and had our own family, of course, confirmed that it did happen. They didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, Philip, we're pulling your leg, you know. And what it did for me, Ryan, I don't know if I really needed it, but it, it cemented my belief in the UFO phenomenon. And I thought, I'm not wasting my time here. There is something worthy of further research and investigation. It's my time to waste anyway, but, you know, it wasn't a waste of time. There was something to it after all, especially the people that reported this. They were the kind of people I'd grown up with all my life. You know, I, I knew them. My father was a coal miner. I had friends work down at the mines. I had other family members did. Um, so I know that's not scientific or anything like that, but it, it's the kind of community I grew up in. And, you know, so landing cases as a result of Mrs. Westerman's account on my doorstep, you know, a couple of miles up the road, just always were there in the back of my mind, irrespective of what else I was dealing with or whatever else would come my way. That was already in the file. And, um, and it continued to, to grow as, as, as the decades went, went by, but that's what it's, that's, that's the one that started it all really. And uh, make of it what you will. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful sunny day, everybody out and about a huge motorway going past nobody, nobody. I mean, we've run this feature in the local newspaper here a couple of times, hoping that somebody else might step forward, but, but no one, no one. So as far as we're aware, you know, the the Westerman family were the only ones to see it. Wow. But there you go. Yeah. I love that. I love hearing that. And you're right. You know, there's a gut feeling in a lot of UFO investigations. Uh, you know, there's, there's many ways to look at a case scientifically, uh, spiritually, even psychologically. And then you also have, you know, this, this just, idea of i trust this person there's no reason for them to have made this up like you said these were the types of people you grew up with these are yeah. these are modest humble people they have nothing to gain by telling yeah. a story like this so then you're left wondering this probably happened but what was it and we may never know and that's yeah. frustrating in some ways and uh exciting in others because then like you said it leads you to that curiosity of these UFO landings and then boom, an entire new door is opened for you and hundreds of cases start to spill in. And that's what I liked about the book is you kind of, you, you um, compartmentalize these into decades, which I really liked, you know, forties, fifties, sixties. And a lot of us here in the United States, when we think of the modern UFO era, it always begins with Kenneth Arnold the flying saucer story, the classic story. But in your book, you actually start with a lot of cases pre Kenneth Arnold that um, I was not aware of. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are yeah, aware of. Yeah, I mean, we, we, you know, we, we always use uh, Kenneth Arnold as the yardstick, but that's when flying saucers became, you know, into popular culture. So there's nothing wrong with that. But I, I remember again, I, I moved a few miles away and again, I did a, um, some years later, I did a local, another local newspaper piece, 
And a gentleman by the name of John Warren uh, uh, contacted me. He was an oldish boy. Um, he'd retired, but he lived nearby. So I went to I went to speak to Mr. Warren because it was literally, you know, a mile or so from where I lived. And he recounted an event back in 1942, uh, before Kenneth Arnold. Um, obviously, it was during wartime, the Second World War. Mr. Warren was in the Royal Air Force and stationed at a place called RAF Ludham in uh, Norfolk um, in the UK. And it was, he, doesn't, he couldn't remember the exact date, but he, he thinks it was May. And he'd been out to a local dance. And it, it was some 12 miles from um, the airbase. And he was a bit late and he missed the last train back so there was no other option uh, in 1942 but, but to walk and not only that he was going to get in trouble for being late you know not absent without leave but he was he was he was going to be in for it if they found out so mm-hmm. he sets off to walk back he's nearing the, the town of Ludham and the airbase when he encounters up ahead of him a a peculiar-looking humanoid uh, just stood at the side of the road, and it had a box on its chest, and it was shining green light out of the top of this box. I don't know if you ever did it when you were a, a youngster yourself, Ram. You got a, you call it a flashlight. We mm-hmm. call it a torch, and put it under your chin, and the light all shoots up. It makes your face right. look funny, right, you know. Right. Yeah. It, it was the early days of, of apps that you have now have on the phone to make your, your, your face look funny. <laughs> or you just get old and grey like me and it ends up looking funny <laughs> anyway, you know. But this light was shining up in its, in its face and he said he had a peculiar grin on its, on its face. But behind it, uh, there was also a dome-shaped object that was illuminated as well. And it scared the living daylights out of him. Remember, this is 1942 you know, it's, you know, the middle of the war. And although I didn't put it in the book, because he, he asked me not to write this, but he said, had he been armed at the time, had he had his sidearm with him, he would have shot it. Hmm. Because this was wartime, and he knew it, it It wasn't anything to do with the RAF or the army. So, i.e., it must be the enemy. And he said mm-hmm. he, would have shot, he would have shot it. But it didn't do anything. He, 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 he scarpered pretty quickly. And lucky, luckily for him, he managed to get back into the, the barracks through a, uh, a window. His friend let him in through a window. And he says, I, you know, I told my friend. Uh, and he was, you know, startled by it. So in the, in the mid-1960s, I think it was, Mr. Warren had also reported the sighting to the British UFO Research Association. So I managed to access their file and find his letter but it was nice to be able to speak to him in person about something that happened pre-Arnold. And it obviously still bothered him because he contacted me when he saw me in the local newspaper. He still wanted to talk about it all those years later. Mm-hmm. And it's just a, a, a you know another fascinating little landing case that nobody's ever heard of. It's been languishing in somebody's files but the good thing was I got to speak to him in person. So you're not just reading bits of paper. You can, 
you could feel you could f- feel the the fascination that this this old boy had, and of yeah. course the era that we're talking about it was you know the wartime, and I can honestly believe him if he would have shot it. You know, I can honestly honestly believe that. You know, it, it we laugh about it. But it sounds the obvious thing to do to me. This is not us, therefore it must be the enemy. I'm yeah. going to shoot the damn thing, and it's right outside the the RAF base. Um, where where he was uh, uh, stationed. So, you know, make of it what you will. I mean, it just gives you one example that if you dig, you, these are the type of things that, that, that come to the surface. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that is a fascinating case. And, you know, this idea of, yeah, it's a potential threat, especially around a military base, which there were several of those in the book that you spoke of. And that lends a lot of credibility for a lot of people who don't, you know, research UFOs like you and I do on a daily basis when they hear that military people are witnessing these pilots, people on the ground, radar operators. That seems to be what really catches people's yeah. attention. Well, Mr. Warren um, was responsible for arming two squadrons of, of uh, fighter aircraft at uh, RAF Ludnam. So he wasn't just a T-boy. You know, he, he wasn't a colonel either, but, he, you know, he wasn't. And like I said, he, he he had no he had no option but to walk home that night. That once you missed the last train, that was it. It yeah. was it was not so it was twelve miles. And he he said I hadn't been on the drink. He said because there wasn't a lot of it anyway, and we didn't have a lot of money either. You know, um, I think he'd been in, in all honesty he'd been chasing the ladies at the dance. But that's that's another story, you know. <laughs> but you know, fascinating, and it makes you wonder, Ryan. When you come across cases like this, it makes you think, well, what others are there out there that we are totally unaware of? And uh, I'll give you an example. It's not in the book. Um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I, I was involved in the, the alien autopsy film mm-hmm. uh, research. And I made a little four-part TV series, TV documentary series about it. And it was right. broadcast last year. And a local gentleman contacted me on email. He said, I've got something I'd like to show you, Philip. And um, so when the lockdown, the COVID lockdown had finished, he, he, he paid me a visit. And this was a the memoirs of his wife's grandfather. Um, like I said, this area used to be a big, big coal mining area. He was actually um, uh, a mining engineer. So not a digger of coal, but he used to design the, the lift shafts and the loading gear and all this kind of thing. And before he died, he typed up his memoirs. Well, they weren't extensive, you know. Um, and as a young boy, he used to live near Manchester, which is about, you know, 40 miles from here, not that far. And and the these memoirs, were in two parts. One was about his life, how he, where he grew up, his family. The second part was about his life as a mining engineer. And this chap said the second half is dreadfully boring, <laughs> unless you unless you're heavily into mining engineering. This is dope. But in the other part, when he was nine years old, I believe eight or nine, there is a chapter, and it just says the encounter. And it's the largest chapter in the whole memoirs. The, he printed these things out himself and just gave them to family members. So there were only about 10 copies he ever made. So he talks about an encounter in 1911. 
and him and his friend were on the way to a local park. They had to walk to it, you know. Children didn't get run around in cars in those days. And he said, we we came to this clearing, and there's this, this thing's on the ground, you know, like a cigar-shaped thing on the ground. And, the you know, they went up to it. It opened up, and there were beings, humanoid beings, looked uh, what we what we probably describe as Asian, uh, wearing coloured clothing, and even a, a a headgear that looked something like a turban. And they communicated with them and, and conversed with them, and then off they went. And he reported it to his parents when he got home, and you know they, they didn't do anything about it. But this was the largest chapter in this gentleman's memoirs. Wow. And it's nobody knew anything about it. I mean, I put this gentleman's name in on Google. I think I found one mention of him, you know, and, and that was it. Nothing to do with UFOs, and I managed to get an old photograph of him, but nothing, not a, not a whisper. And this was nine, 1911, you know, the early part of the 20th century, before the First World War, right. and it had just been sacked gathering dust you know i was only disappointed that i didn't get to meet the old boy and speak to him you know in person and um this gentleman let me take a, a you know a copy of this this file uh, and i have it but it, it's not in the book but i thought i'd mention that because it's it's an example we just said you know what else is lying around out there that we were not aware of and and here was one again it came about because I, I appeared on TV and he must have Googled me and he thought, oh, he only lives up there. I'm easy enough to find, you know, I'm not, I'm not living in some, some hobbit land in a little round house, you know, and, and I was forever thankful. And I published the story in a couple of magazines and I sent this gentleman copies of it. It was, you know, to share with the family, uh, but very bizarre, very strange, but it shows you what, what else may be lying around that we're unaware of, of these strange, strange accounts, you know, and make of it what you will. I, uh, you know, um, there's a lot more to the story than that, but I, you know, I, I, a, I can't remember it all off, offhand. <laughs> B, we're, 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 we're limited for time anyway, but it, yeah. it's an example. That is something that's only in 10 copies of an old wow. boy's memoirs. And it's, you will not find it anywhere else. Very interesting. Again, I, I like the way you uh, you think about these things, Philip, of, you know, how many lost chapters are there to memoirs out there or, uh, you know, reports that never made it to an organization or to the FAA or to the local law enforcement. You yeah. know, that old saying of like, you know, 95% of people have probably seen something unexplained in the sky, but two percent maybe report it somewhere so we can only imagine the untold stories that are out there so that's yeah, really fascinating yeah. well people um, say to me how how yeah. do you find out these things philip well i i always say my 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 mum god rest her soul she always used to say to me you'll never get lost so long as you have a tongue in your head in other words ask just ask and when you ask the simplest of questions right it's amazing of what the answers are that come back, especially when you're dealing with these things and what things you find. I know, I know I've given you examples here where I've been in the local media and, and, and somebody's contacted me, 
But a lot of the times we were just doing the asking, you know, right. and putting ourselves out there and saying, have you seen anything? If you have, come and tell us. Come and tell us. And I mean, again, hundreds of landings have occurred. Um, are there any more, Philip, that you find um, extra notable that you'd like to share with us here throughout the decades? Well, you, you, you know, one of the busiest times uh, for UFOs full stop was just before I got involved in the UK I'm talking about. And it's the, the sort of late 1970s. Mm-hmm. And um, I think you were, I think you mentioned it anyway. There's a, an incident that took place in what's called Deckmont Woods in Livingston right. in Scotland. And uh, it was um, the late 1970s. I think it was 1979. And it involved a... Um, a local gentleman by the name of Robert Taylor. Mr. Taylor was a forestry worker, uh, hence it happening in Deckmont Woods. He set off to go to work uh, from Livingston, and the woods were up on a hill, you know, beyond where he lived, in his truck with his dog. And uh, it was a very down-to-earth gentleman, was, was Mr. Taylor, and he's walking down through these woods, and there's a small clearing, and as he comes to this clearing, there is this thing there, sat again, sat on the ground. It is dome-shaped. It has what he described as a flange going around the bottom of it. And on this flange were little pointers sticking up with like a, 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 a helicopter blade on them. And either from the back of this thing or from underneath it rolled these two large balls, black balls with spikes on he said they remind him of the, the old um, World War II mines they used out at sea. And they literally plopped across the – you could hear them plopping across the, the ground because it was muddy as they came towards him. Um, he felt a tug on either side of his, his, his trousers in the middle of his thighs, thighs but outside. Uh, there was a high-pitched whistling sound, a smell of sulfur, and he was out cold. I mean, literally out cold. When he came around, you know, his dog is doing somersaults and this thing has gone. I mean, literally. So he staggered to his, his truck, tried to drive it and managed to just get it into a ditch. So he, it wasn't far to where he lived. So he staggered down home, knocked on the door and his wife's there. And she says, what's the matter? What's happened? You know, he's looking a bit disheveled, a bit dirty. And he says, I've been attacked. So she phones the police, you know, and the police come and he tells them. And when the police go to the location, it's exactly where he told them to go. There are these strange marks in the ground. There's two that look like caterpillar marks and some other indentations around them. Uh, Fortunately for the police and and, and UFO investigators, um, it, it was cold that night. I believe they might have had a bit of snow. So it froze the muddy ground. So these imprints were frozen in place Mm. and photographs were taken. The police even drew a sketch of these marks. And because Mr. Taylor was such an upstanding member of the community, the police actually carried out uh, a forensic investigation. And it's the only official forensic police investigation of a UFO sighting anywhere in the UK. Oh, wow. And you know they confirmed that the that, that Mr. Mr. Taylor's trousers were torn where he felt these things pulling on him, went right through, 
And these were heavy, you know, duty work trousers. Uh, they confirmed that they were consistent with a upward pulling motion. And they, you know, they conducted a full report. And I have, you know, I have a copy of that police report. Uh, again, there was a, there's a motorway runs nearby from, from, uh, Edinburgh to Glasgow. Livingston's kind of in the middle of those. If, you know, if you're trying to picture it on a map, it's not an out of the way place in the middle of nowhere, you know. And I, I was fortunate. My, my colleague, uh, Malcolm Robinson, uh, from Scotland was on site within no time at all. And Malcolm has written the definitive book on this. I mean, it is a fantastic book. So just look out for that if you're interested. But I went with Malcolm many years later to interview Mr. Taylor. And this is an interesting little story. He told us the account just as he'd done with everybody else. And we thanked him for the time. And Malcolm and I set off up to Deckmont Woods. And, you know, the trees had grown somewhat in, in the years that had passed. But we found the location and we're taking some photographs. But it wasn't. If you didn't know where you were going, uh, Ryan, you wouldn't have known anything about it. It's just, a, just trees. Right. So I said to Malcolm, they now put a picnic bench there. The local councillor put a picnic bench. So why don't you get a brass plaque made? I just screw it onto the side of the picnic bench, you know. So Malcolm went to the local council with this idea. And instead of that, they put a huge, great rock there with a big plaque on it you know, commemorating the event. And I think just the other year, they've gone a stage further now and put sign posters and things explaining it, you know, and and not that they're going to get thousands of tourists like they do in Roswell, but, you know, there are maps there and it will take you to the location. And that just came as an off-the-cuff remark between Malcolm and I and fair play to him. He, Malcolm took the idea up and ran with it and he's done a great job. But it's again, it fascinating case was, you know, forensically, I have to emphasize that word forensically investigated by the, by the police and they could find no explanation for it. You know, again, he wasn't lying. He, you know, he, he had no idea. One of the curious things about this and it's, you know, I forgot to mention it myself. Um, is that when Mr. Taylor is looking at this object on the ground, the the dome, if you like, is part of it was transparent. But that transparency moved, didn't stay all in one place. And we're not looking at a transparent dome. That transparency moved around the top of this dome, uh, and and it's. I don't, you know, I don't, I, I can't figure that out at all. It's very puzzling indeed. Hmm. And, um, but there, there is a lot more involved in the case that, that I've highlighted, but, uh, just look, you know, look for Malcolm's book, Malcolm Robinson. You, you'll not be disappointed, I can assure you. But it's another fascinating case. This one has appeared in the newspapers. It has appeared on television, but it's not widely well-known like Rendlesham or, or you won't find anything, any mention of Rendlesham Forest in my new book at all, because, <laughs> you know, there are countless books about it. So I, I didn't need to write about that. Uh, I right. couldn't have done it justice just in, in just one chapter, but, um, but the Deckmont Woods case or Livingston or Robert Taylor, you know, is fascinating. And, and again, I was glad to meet the Manning himself. Um, I was actually, um, 
researching my first book when I spoke to Mr. Taylor, uh, way back in 1994, I co-authored a book called Without Consent, which dealt with abductions and missing time cases, again, only here in the UK, nowhere else. And there was a period of missing time that Mr. Taylor couldn't account for. Um, so that's why I went to interview him. But he'd never explored it any further. It was just, I don't know, I, I, you know, I was out cold. I don't know what happened, you know. Um, and I tried to drive my truck and ended it, that ended up in a ditch, <laughs> you know. So, but I was glad, I was glad I got to to, to speak to him. I, I really am. And, and it was a, again, Ryan, I know it doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people, but he was such a down-to-earth gentleman. You know, he really was. He had his job, his wife, his family, and his dog, and that's all he was really interested in, you know. And he, he, he was bewildered by the whole event. He, even right up to the day he died, I believe he was still, you know, had no idea what happened to him that day. Wow. Again, you know, posing that question, why? Why would someone make something like this up? There's absolutely nothing to gain. He didn't want notoriety. Uh, he reported it to the only people he thought he could, and that's the police. His wife did, and that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah said, that, I've, that is a great I've been, atta- I've been attacked. So if you've been attacked, what do you yeah. do? Just call the, the logical police. thing, call the police. <laughs> you know? You're right. Yeah. I love it. Um, well, And I do want to talk about there is um, this subset in the UFO field uh, when it comes to landings or close encounters where school children are involved. And that seems to be a really big thing, Uh, uh, more cases than I ever thought actually existed. Um, And we will get there. But before we get to that pinnacle case in, in Broadhaven, Philip, are there any other cases in the book that you really want to share with us now? Um, you have a chapter called The X-Files, which, of course, well, well, is near to my heart. I'll, but- I'll go, <laughs> no, I'll go back in time to the 70s again, if I may. Yeah, please. Because one of the things I talk about in the book is the, the term that uh, the late Alan Hynek came up with, and that's high strangeness. Mm, yes. And as far as he was concerned, you know, um, the, the, the stranger these things, cases were the closer you got to the objects then it the less likely is that it's a misidentification you know we, we all know ryan that most ufo sightings at the end of the day have a conventional explanation but when you're up close and personal to these things it's it's very difficult to say it was an airplane or it was a star or planet or whatever other excuse even Heineck fell foul of that didn't he with the swamp gas you know and he admitted he got that wrong many years later but um, there's a place, and I can't pronounce it correctly, so I, it's in Wales. Now, the Welsh language is, you know, uh, one of a kind, really. It's a place called Macalenth in, in Wales, and it involved a young boy called Trevor. You know, we've never released his, his surname. It happened on July the 22nd, 1975, and he was with his father, and they were heading for the coast and the beach. And behind the beach was this large hill. And, you know, Trevor being an adventurous young man, thought, I'm, I'm, I'm up here. So, he, he, you know, it wasn't anything dangerous. He, he scrambled up the rocks. And when he got to the top, he was amazed that there was this, this dome-shaped object with lights all around it actually there amongst the rocks. 
And it was dome-shaped. This dome was transparent. And what makes it even more high strangeness is the creatures that he saw in it. There were two creatures that he called jellymen. They were seemed as if they were, you know, bubbling away inside them, all moving, this mass moving inside of them. Mm-hmm. And it, it frightened the hell out of him. He ran down the rocks, yelled to his father, and then turned around and ran back up. And his father thought he was playing some kind of game. But when, when his father looked up, he could see Trevor hiding behind a rock. So he's climbed these rocks and he's hiding behind it and bobbing up to, to, look, to look at these things. So he hid behind the rock again. And when he gone back, this thing has, has gone, you know. And it is totally bizarre what Trevor described. I can't find anything in, in, in the UFO literature that matches what, what we call jellymen. Yeah. And, and I had to use it. It's, you know, it's a case that the, some of us older researchers here in the, in the UK are aware of, but by no means everybody. And it shows you how really strange some of these incidents are. You know, this is 1975. So, it's you know, there are science fiction movies that have been out there, you know, but he hasn't got this from any science fiction story that I'm aware of that, that made the headlines in Wales, you know, as a, as a young lad. And it is extremely peculiar. It really is. And, you know... I, like anything else, I don't try and indoctrinate with anything that, that I do, Ryan. I just say, he, here it is. You, you can decide for yourself. You've got a brain in your head. You don't need me to tell you what to do or what to think. Make of it what you will. But it shows, again, the bizarre nature of some of these encounters. Because if we if we believe the tabloid press, that it's all the same no matter where you go, things that are reported are the little grey guys. And the only people that report them are, you know, hicks out in the middle of the New New Mexico desert, you know. But no, they're not. This was on a beach in Wales, you know, and some rocks behind the beach. So, you know, yeah, yeah, RAF base in 1942, right outside the RAF base, you know. What, 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 I mean, it's just, and it makes me scratch my head, you know. It's some of these cases when you look into them, you think, well, I can't deny it, but it's so bizarre. And that, that's one example of it, that when we talk about high strangeness, his father didn't see the thing, but his father saw him hiding behind the rocks. He hid behind this rock and he kept popping up. Because uh, at one point, this dome started to open, and that's when he ran. So he thought, oh, these things are coming out. I'm, I don't blame know. him, yeah. No, but uh, but there you go. I mean, But again... People have said, "Well, why, why were things so active in the, in the late 1970s in the UK?" Mm-hmm. My answer is, I don't know. I just do not know. But if you've gone through archives and files like I have, not only was it very active in the late 1970s, these high strangeness cases were very active in the late 1970s. Some people, obviously, skeptical say it's because Star Wars, you know, close encounters. But, you know, I, for me, that, that doesn't explain it all. 
you know, it can't explain it. You know, it's, right. it's a nice try, but no cigar, you know. <laughs> uh, but there you go. So that, that, that case is in the book and you can read for it. There's a picture of, of what was drawn an artist impression, you know, make of it what you will. Yeah. Well, yeah, we should mention too, in the book, you have many uh, detailed witness sketches and of craft of uh, humanoids and that alone was very uh, interesting to just skim through the book and look at the, like you mentioned, the bizarre uh, nature of some of these beings, a jelly being and, yeah. you know, these beings with boxes, these it, like the way they're described, it truly makes you wonder, A, how many different intelligences are we dealing with? How many different phenomena? How high strangeness do these actually get? And uh, what can we say about the witnesses and their perception of yeah. these things as well? It's yeah. interesting. I mean, that, that's, that's where the answers lie in those questions you've just posed. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I have another f kind of a favorite case, but in, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, we had a, a, a well-known pop group in the UK called Hot Chocolate. And it was, <laughs> Love it. it was, yeah, led by a, a, a black guy called Errol Brown, who was a beautiful voice, great singer, well-known. In 1980, they released a song called No Doubt About It. I've never seen 
And when you listen to the song, it's on YouTube, you'll find it, hot chocolate, no doubt about it. They're singing about a flying saucer landing. And the video they made to go with it, you know, is all spacey and what have you. And I just thought it was just a pop song that somebody had, had written and made up. But I found out that it's actually based on a real event. Now, none of the members of the pop group Hot Chocolate saw anything. But the two people that wrote the song actually did. And one of them is called Steve Glenn. And I managed to get hold of Steve when I was um, researching the book and speak to him. He's still active in the in the music business. He, he was a uh, a singer himself. I think he even went to number one in Japan at one point with one of his songs. But he was more of a songwriter. And he wrote a, a lot of songs for a lot of the well-known pop stars in the UK in that era. And um, they're in the south of England. And they were heading for the recording studio one night, him and his friend in the car. And they had another pop group following along uh, behind them in a van. When they saw this <laughs> peculiar thing, it's a huge, great thing. So he pulled over at the side of the road and they, they ducked down behind some bushes because this thing came to ground. And he said he shot out these little spheres, almost as if they were like attacking them. So, you know, they even phoned the police uh, when this, and, and the police came out and spoke to them. It was, you know, it was too late. This thing had gone by then. So Steve told me, he said, uh, uh, we went home that night and we sat down, him and his partner, and they wrote the song, no doubt about it, in about 10 minutes. And it was, I think it was Hot Chocolate's best-selling single. It sold zillions of them all over the world. Obviously not, in the, you know. So that is in the book. You know, that is in the book. There's a pop song inspired by a real event. And, and in fact, I spoke to Steve Glenn just the other day, uh, telling him the book's out, and, uh, you know, I, I, I needed his address to send him a copy, because I always said I would, and he gave me his address, and, and um, it, it's, he's now got it. So there you go. It's amazing, we, 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 yeah. You know, a pop, we even have a pop song inspired by a real <laughs> event. I just thought it was a made-up song, you know, like, like they do, Ryan. Yeah. But no, it's based on a UFO landing case here in the UK. Right. And, you know, like you said, written in 10 minutes, all you need for your lyrics is uh, your witness testimony of what happened and throw some rhythm behind it and you got a pop song. Well, let's, I guess, kind of bookend this with probably one of the the most well-known UFO landings in the UK. And this was in Wales. This was part of a um, what many consider a UFO flap. A lot of things were happening in Wales at the time, but this is probably one of the most prominent um, that I know of here in the States. And that is the, the Broadhaven incident. Mm. Like I mentioned earlier, school children involved. A lot of people know the Rua Zimbabwe case in yep. the nineties, but this case actually um, is a little lesser known here. So I, if you don't mind, could you tell us a little about this case and uh, yeah, well, Broadhaven. find out about it? Um, I mean, Wales itself as a country, you know, it's only yeah. a small place. Uh, it's the it's the western bit that sticks out fr from the UK. And Broadway, this happened on February the 4th, 1977. And as we were saying earlier, a lot of things seem to be ha happening in the, in, the, in the 1970s here in the right. UK. And it involved 14 children, 14 at school, at the local school in Broadhaven. Uh, we used to call it playtime 
but you know, it was a, a break at school and they saw this a silver metallic object, you know, land outside. Uh, with, it had some kind of thing on the top. And I believe there were, I think six of the children actually reported seeing humanoid figures and they were silver suited. And the only sort of facial description that these, the children were described, they said that these creatures had big ears, you know, and fortunately, um, they were all sat down and, and, and drew pictures of these things. And, and we have some of the original drawings uh, reproduced in my book. Uh, it was also reported to the Ministry of Defence here in the UK, who did indeed look into it, not, not extensively, but they did look into it. The local police were involved. Uh, but other things were happening in and around Wales at the time, lots of sightings, um, to such an extent that it got this area got nicknamed the Broadhaven Triangle. So within this specific geographical area, there was a lot of sightings. But as I mentioned, throughout the UK in the late 1970s, there were a lot of weird and wonderful things. And I don't know about you, Ryan, but, you know, I've, I've lectured at, at schools. Mm-hmm. And I, I find the, the, the youngsters I've probably ask the better questions than the grown-ups. And, of <laughs> course, most of them don't have the vices that we adults accumulate down the years. Right. And, and they can be very honest. I mean, you know, I take my, I've got two daughters, and I take my youngest daughter when she was little. She would be so honest. She was blunt, you know, because she said, well, you always told me to tell the truth, Dad. And I said, yeah, and I know sometimes, but if somebody's ugly, you don't have to tell them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, so I think sometimes the children are the best witnesses because yeah. they just say it as they see it. You know, they haven't got the vices that we have. And and that is a prime example here with Broadhaven. And it, it's sad, really, that, that um, it's kind of disappeared from the public domain, it would be, I haven't been able to do it, but I haven't tried. I'm going to be honest to speak some of, to speak to some of these children now that they've grown up, I'm sure, you know, there were only uh, youngsters in 1977. So hopefully some of them would still be uh, around, but it would be fascinating to speak to them now. Like I did with the children in Normanton, we found one of them was introduced to me, you know, just a couple of years back and she still reported the same thing, Ryan, and I believe, like you mentioned, the aerial school sighting in the 90s in, in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. They're all grown up and adults now, and some of those have been interviewed. Uh, Westall in Australia in 1966. Shane right. Ryan's done a great job with that. And, and they, you know, he's spoken to a lot of the children now that are adults. And even I think one of the teachers was also involved at that time. So schoolyard sightings, if you like are um, a bit more common than perhaps we would imagine. And um, and that's just one example is, is the Broadhaven sightings. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's lots of drawings that went with it. I, I couldn't really have room to reproduce them all, but I've, I've put a good example of them in the book. And I think, I think observations by children per se are, are, are fascinating. 
But when it comes to things like this, you know, people who always say, oh, the kids are making it up, you know, what for? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's usually one child or one child and his mate will, will, will come up with a crazy idea. And that's how it used to work when I was young. Me and my best friend got up to some mischief, but it was never the whole school, yeah, you know. Right. So, but yeah, I mean, you're right. You're right to flag it up, Ryan, because it is a fascinating story, as are the other what we call schoolyard sightings as well. Yeah. And it'd be interesting if to see if in the coming years there aren't a few more that come out of the woodwork. Are the contemporary ones that happens now or things that are, you know, stuck in somebody's filing cabinet and forgotten about? We shall see. We shall see. Yeah. Let's hope, hope for the best. Well, um, I want to ask you this, Philip. With a lot of these cases, you mentioned the high strangeness aspect, what these humanoids look like, um, you know, the craft landing and then taking off. But my big question when it comes to any of these landings, that it seems the beings come out, maybe they hang around for a couple minutes and then leave. What do you think, if you had to guess, what is the purpose of these landings? Are they surveying yeah. the the earth well, are they we, here to we have, invade we, what do you what do you think the purpose is well well if we come to a conclusion that way we have to agree that these are beings from another world and i, I would say we, we don't know as yet what these things are mm-hmm. now some people will will know that i i'm a i'm a publisher i run a, a small outfit called flying Dispress. and the second book i ever published was by a romanian uh scientist called dr dan farkas it was simply called UFOs over Romania. Mm-hmm. Dan's second book was his hypotheses of what UFOs are. And he calls it hyper civilizations because it's the very question, the very thing you just pointed out there that, that puzzled Dan more than anything is that he calls them the euphonauts do stupid things. You know, they come, <laughs> they fiddle around. And they're gone, you know, yeah. leaving leaving the poor bemused witnesses behind scratching their heads. And what he, his, I'm not saying he's right or wrong. I'm not saying I agree with him, but it, it made me think. He said, he honestly believes we are being visited by an intelligence not of this earth. Where it comes from, how it gets here, what? no idea. But on the evolutionary scale, he estimates that it's not a few thousand years in advance of us. It's actually millions of years in advance. And no matter how hard, you know, we humans try, we're simply not able to understand it. We're not high enough up the evolutionary ladder yet to figure it mm. out. And it, it gives an idea. It says, you know, you take a flat screen television and stick it in an ant's nest. Now, the ants will know it's there. They'll crawl all over it. Maybe some of the soldier ants might even attack it. But never in a million years will they be able to figure out what the hell it is, what it's made of, and what its purpose is. So maybe on that scale, we are the evolutionary ants. You know, that is the difference between us. And, it, and of course, that's one of the parameters in the Drake equation. You know, the astronomer Drake and about the, the possibility of life elsewhere in, in the universe. And one of them is the, the age of civilizations. That's, that's one of the things that make up the Drake, Drake equation. Now, we as 
as a species, never mind a civilization, we have a, as a species have only been around for, you know, in the blink of an eye. The dinosaurs ruled the earth for millions of years right. before they were wiped out. You know, mankind is, you know, we haven't been here for two minutes, really. So you imagine, let's assume that we don't wipe ourselves out one way or another, that mankind survives for the next billion years. What will we look like? What will our mm -hmm. technology be? I mean, it's forget Star Trek. We're beyond all that. You know, you look what we've done since the the the, the Wright brothers first flew at Kitty Hawk. Mm -hmm. You know, within 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 a, a generation, we went from flying at Kitty Hawk to landing on the moon. So you know, you stick a billion years on on the top of that. I just think what will be like technology, and it, so there may be a civilization or civilizations out there already at that point that they evolved or were created whichever way you want to believe you know a billion years ago and they've stumbled across us you know swarm swarming about on this little planet you know and shown an interest but we're too dumb to figure out what it is <laughs> and it makes you wonder for example you look you could also look at the, the, the next most intelligent creature on earth is the dolphin Mm -hmm. And scientists believe that the dolphins have a rudimentary rudimentary language, but yet we can't say hello, Flipper. How you doing? Well, how do you feel today? We can teach you to jump up and catch a fish. You know, right. we can't converse with them. You know, and what do they, so we don't know when they look up out of the water and, and they see us. What they what do they think? I mean, they're self aware. You know, I think therefore I am. The dolphins are self aware. Um, so what do they think about us mm. when they're looking up out of the water? You know, but imagine that in a, in a expand that between us and another civilization elsewhere. So I don't know, but it just yeah. made me think it really did make me think. And, um, because if you think about it, if we, if you and I were astronauts and we landed on a planet and we found another civilization, another life form, we wouldn't just piddle around and then leave it, <laughs> you know. I'm out of there. <laughs> you know. Good point. Yeah, but it's a good analogy. Know, yeah, yeah. It's it's just it's just food for thought. And all I would say is to anyone, you know, the, the information is out there. Just pick it up, have a have a look at it, and draw your own conclusions. You know, and I think you know people like me and my colleagues. One of the things our purpose is to record this information though that hopefully somebody somewhere will be able to make sense of it all. It's a bit like the early astronomers, you know, they were recording things. People saying, I don't know what this is, you know, mm -hmm. for example, you know, I think it was 150 years ago, stones couldn't fall from the skies. You look up into the sky, Ryan, there's no stones there, is there? It's clouds and yeah. rainbows. But I think there was an event in the early part of the 19th century in France, when a lot of stones did fall from the sky and it forced the astronomers to admit, yes, we do know they fall from the sky, but we just don't know what the hell they are anyway. So maybe in uf ufological terms, we're at that point now. We, we know that UFOs exist. We know there is a UFO phenomena, but, you know, 
we've got one of those rocks that's fallen from the sky. We finally admitted it, but we don't know what there they come from, what it is, what it's made of, what its purpose is, etc., etc., etc. I may be totally wrong as well, of course, but it's it's just it's just an idea. I know. I love that you're building off of what we can now accept and uh, hopefully globally uh begin to understand that yes there is a phenomena you know here in the united states our government has said yes ufos exist now it's a million questions that come after that like you well, said our, our own, but it's a our, big- yeah here in the midst our own ministry of defense have always admitted always you go th- mm-hmm. back through the, the the mod files have always admitted there are things in the skies that they can't explain but then they put a caveat on that. We didn't find, you know, there was no threat to the air defense of the UK, and therefore we're not interested. Right. And, you know, but they've always admitted there's things in the sky they can't explain. It's, it's nothing new. Yeah, very good point. Well, um, speaking of new, Philip, what can new people who, uh, you know, might have one of these close encounters or see a craft landing what advice would you give to people like this um if this does happen to them if these things are truly happening yeah well i I would i would say you know by all means report it you know there are a lot of there's a lot of different channels now where you can report things in confidence if required um a lot of the local ufo groups that used to be here in the uk have disappeared but they're being replaced by other online um, assets where you can report things. Again, in confidence, it is vital that you know we we, share, we, we add the information to the the pool of knowledge that we that we already have. But think about it carefully. You know, speak to family members first. You know, if it's something so bizarre, so frightening, you may wish to report it to the the local authorities. Even the police here are still duty bound to investigate. And I mentioned there has been one full forensic investigation because of the, of the gentleman in question. Uh, he was a, a well-known member of the local community, and that was, you know, in Livingston in Scotland. And we, we know there are lots of independent UFO researchers as well. So you're able to do your homework like you, you couldn't do when I first started. You can Google somebody's name. You can have a look. You can see what they've worked on. And you're thinking that might be the right person for me or, or not. Uh, that is still UFO organizations like MUFON and others in other different countries, of course. And um, I would say, you know, step forward. You don't have to go public, but by all means, share what information you have with UFO research. It, 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 can, it could be another piece of the of the jigsaw puzzle that you're adding who you never know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. The more people who come forward, uh, the more we normalize this and the more data we can add to this growing mystery and maybe find some answers uh, to some of it, maybe not all of it, but Hey, like you said, I'd rather have half the puzzle than no puzzle at all. At least in my lifetime. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, to kind of wrap things up here, Philip, um, you know, landings is one thing. Abductions is an entirely different story. It's just elevated to the umpteenth level. And I know you have done a lot of research into a case here in the United States, and that is the Pascagoula incident. Yeah. Um, several books that you've published on that. And um, 
it's a developing story. I know you had a breaking story recently of another witness who came forward um, and whatnot. But yeah, would you mind teasing us a little of what we can expect? In yeah, the future yeah. Well, I, mean, investigation? I mean, I got involved in the Pascagoula case. It involved Charles Hickson, who was 42, and Calvin Parker, who was almost 19. And it was October the 11th, 1973. Calvin had moved out to, to work with Charlie in the shipyard. Mm-hmm. They just got engaged, wanted a regular job. And even though there was an age difference, the one thing these two guys shared was their love of fishing. So literally Calvin's first day at work, they're coming home. He's driving. Charlie says, you want to go fishing tonight? Yeah. So they got the gear, stopped off, bought some bait, and they drove to the Pascagoula River in Mississippi. As they're driving into it, this place is not out of the way. So it's not in the middle of nowhere. It's like some swampland. You can drive up to it. Calvin passes a, a no-entry sign, and he says to Charlie, you know, I don't, what about that? He said, I'll take no notice. So they park the car up. They drive past another car that's parked up. They try one spot. It's got loads of flies biting them and no fish. So they, they try an old abandoned um, pier. There used to be a shipyard there. There's an old pier. So they're standing on there, and the, Calvin's got his, cast his rod, his line. He's looking out to... And, you know, I, I've often wondered what fishermen think about when they're stood there not catching any fish. <laughs> you know, Calvin was looking at this ship that was going out, wondering why, how the hell is something like that? You know, how does it float? Yeah. And then behind him came these blue lights and they sparkled across the river. And he thought, oh, no. I knew we shouldn't have ignored the no entry sign. It's the police. We're going to spend the night in jail. So he turns around and, and he noticed that Charlie's turning around about the same time as him. And of course, it's not the police. There is this, uh, what we call a rugby ball, an oval shaped object descending. Uh, it's got two lights at, at, at one end and it stops about two feet off the ground. And it's this thing that's giving off the blue light. On the right hand side, this opening appears. And the, and the light is even more intense coming out of it. And these three strange humanoid beings, again, float out of this thing. They don't, they don't touch the ground. They're about, I know, 18 inches off the ground. Their legs are stuck together, so their legs don't move. They've got long arms. They're gray, wrinkly skin creatures with mitten or crab-like, pin, you know, appendages on their hands. They have a protrusion sticking out of every each side of the head and one out of the front. Two of them grab Charlie, one grabs Calvin, take them towards this thing. Um, both Charlie and Calvin describe, you know, the interior of it as there's nothing really there. Um, Calvin de- describes it as um, the light comes out of the paint. You know, there's no light fittings, no bulbs, no tubes. It's just the walls illuminate this dazzling blue light. They're both placed in different parts of this thing, so they lose contact with each other. I'm cutting a long story short here, Ryan. Something comes down out of the ceiling and whirls around Calvin. A similar thing happened to Charlie. Calvin also sees another creature who who comes up to him that looks almost human, Uh, but it's a female. Um, but the, the middle fingers of this female creature are long and she scratches Calvin and there's a bit of an altercation. They're then placed back out on the pier 
and this thing is it's gone. Um, they at first decide not to tell anybody because they say, I think we're nuts. Well, they get back to Calvin's car, which was brand new. Uh, the, the, the glass falls out of the passenger side window. It won't start. Takes them quite a while to get it started. And en route home, they, Charlie has a change of heart. Says, no, we better tell somebody. This could be an invasion. What if they come back? What if it happens for somebody else? Um, so they pull in at a local store and use the, the payphone. They at first phone Keesler Air Force Base, which is nearby, and they say, we're not interested. You know, ring the authorities. So they, they ring the police, and the police come out and escort them into, into the sheriff's department, where they're both interviewed uh, separately uh, by Sheriff Fred Diamond and his deputies. And then they're both put in a room together, and there's a desk there. And unbeknown to Charlie and Calvin, in this desk is a tape recorder playing. And the police think, we'll get them now. We'll leave them for five or ten minutes, and we'll, you know. So they do. The, uh, a deputy comes and retrieves something out of the desk. These two guys don't know what he's doing. And it's the tape, and they play it back. Calvin's going out of his mind. He's almost praying. You know, they're talking about what had happened to them. So this became known as the secret tape, you know. And mm -hmm. somehow the story got out the next day. The press ascended on the on the place. Charlie and Calvin were taken to hospital to be checked. Uh, they were then, ironically, taken to Keesler Air Force Base <laughs> to be checked for to be checked for radiation. Okay. And and that proved zero. But they said, well, while you're here gentlemen why don't you tell us your story you know <laughs> um um you know we have the police tape there was no recording done at keesler but there was a stenographer so we have a transcript of what everything that happened at keesler everybody that was there and and this story made worldwide news charlie dealt with it pretty well calvin didn't want anything to do with it he went he went back home uh, a couple of weeks later he had a bit of a breakdown and didn't really talk much about it. I didn't want to talk about it for years. Now, in 1983, Charles Hickson, along with a chap called William Mendes, published a book called UFO Contact at Pascagoula. Charlie died in 2011. So just a couple of years back, I got the rights to republish Charlie's book. And I thought, I know he's deceased, but I think Calvin's still around. Maybe I can get an interview with him. Mm -hmm. So it took me a while, but I, I finally found him. And he was very nice when I spoke to him on the phone, very polite, but didn't really say an awful lot. You know, unbeknown to me, his wife, Calvin's wife, Waynette, only a few weeks beforehand, they'd been to a um, a funeral. And Calvin had signed the, the book coming out, and people were pointing at it and pointing at him. You know, they knew who he was then. Mm -hmm. She said, why don't you write a damn book? So I said, well, if you want to do it, I'll help you with it. So we did. We wrote, we wrote two books. And once Calvin came out of the woodwork, then so did others. And he, um, he did a small television piece for, for the local TV station. And they made like a, you know, like a mini eight-minute documentary, Ryan. Mm -hmm. I went out, and it ended up on YouTube. And one of the comments on it um, said, my mum and dad were on the opposite side of the river that night and they too saw the UFO. Oh, wow. 
thought, holy schmoly. Well, words to that effect anyway, <laughs> you know. So I got this lady's name. I found her on social media. I contacted her, explained who I was, and I said, could we possibly speak to your mom and dad? Please ask them first. So they did. This turned out to be Mr. and Mrs. Blair. They were living in just down the road, but in over the border in Alabama at the time. And um, so we, we spoke to them. And what they told us was, yes, indeed, they were on the opposite side of the river that night. Mr. Blair worked in the fishing industry and he was waiting for a, a boat to come in, take him out to work. And it was late. So he was not a happy man, <laughs> you know. And she, Mrs. Blair said, we're on this little pier and opposite, I could see this blue thing. And it's moving around as if it's either looking for something or it doesn't know where it's going. And then the boat comes in. So Mr. Blair saw this as well. So they're walking up the pier and she says, there's this almighty splash in the river next to me. She's going to look down. She says, there's a gray man in the water. And it went under the water and never came back up. Mr. Blair said, after some reluctance, he eventually told us, he says, well, I saw the, he didn't call it a gray man. He called it the gray humanoid. He says, I saw it come back up out of the water because he was further along the pier and it, it was heading back across the water. And then he'd never spoken about this ever. They, they told their two daughters, one of their daughters left that message on, on YouTube, mm-hmm. which led them to it. Now, Mrs. Blaise also said, you know, Philip, I saw Charlie and Calvin on the TV, you know, I think it was the next day or the day after. And she said, I often wondered if something like that didn't happen to us. She had these vague recollections of seeing something out of her peripheral vision. And she couldn't quite make it out. It's like you stared at your, your screen now, Ryan. You know, you, you get, this bit is blurred out here. Yeah. Anyway, about a year later, Mr. Blair took ill. And he was in the hospital for a, an operation. And he wasn't, it was 50-50 whether he was going to make it. And God bless him, he insisted that his, his wife phone me on the mobile phone. And he said, we were abducted as well, Philip. Oh, and he, wow. he told, started to tell his wife the whole story. Thankfully, he did survive the operation. And he told his wife the whole story. She was as mad as hell with him because he'd never told anybody. She just had these vague memories, you know, these vague little recollections. And he told us the whole story. Sadly, you know, a few months down the line, Mr. Blair passed away. So it was almost like a deathbed confession. And we even have a little film of him filmed on his wife's mobile phone. He insisted on uh, doing that. And he's telling us the story. So just recently, and you're the first to know this, Mrs. Blair underwent regressive hypnosis with a professional hypnotherapist, and she has recounted the whole story with a whole lot more. Calvin had previously been under hypnosis. Uh, Kathleen Marden in 2019. In 1993, Calvin had another missing time experience, so he went under hypnosis with none other than Bud Hopkins. Now... Calvin also went under hypnosis again recently. We just had the opportunity, so we thought, well, we'll do it while we, we can. 
When he's under hypnosis, he says, I'm lying on this, he calls it a bench or a bed. It's just a, 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 a glass top thing. You don't know what the hell it is. These creatures are there. And he says, they take my shoes and socks off. And he says, they're doing something with my foot and it hurts. And he's describing, you know, and he, it's something dripping out of his mouth. He's not sure if it's blood or whatever. He says, it almost feels as if they're sticking something in his foot and it's coming out of his mouth. He's not saying that did happen. It just gave him that impression. Now, when I, when I met Calvin for the first time and we decided to write his book, I said to him, have you got any photographs, documents, anything? He says, no, I haven't got anything. Everything was swept away in Hurricane Katrina. Lost everything. That's why we can't find old photographs of Calvin when he was little. They're all gone. So one of the things I said about Dewey while he's writing was to pester the living daylights out of UFO groups and researchers for any information or files they had about the case. Now, Heineck had been involved right from day one. He was he was there within two days, so was Dr. James Harder. So it just made sense. I started at the Center for UFO Studies. And I asked them, have you got anything on the Pascagoula case? They sent me a file, PDF file. Most of it was, you know, newspaper cuttings. However, right in the middle of it, there is a typewritten, one-page typewritten document. So this is done on an old typewriter. And you can tell it has because the date's been put on it wrong and they've typed over it. So it's dated the 13th of October, 1973. So it's two days after the encounter. And it describes giving both Charlie and Calvin a physical examination. So they were looked over. Hmm. And it said that there were, in inverted commas, puncture wounds in Charlie Hickson's arm and puncture wounds in Calvin Parker's foot. Mm. And there's photographs enclosed. Unfortunately, there were no photographs. But <sighs> we had this, we had, I'm finished yet. Okay, we, had this, okay. we, we had this document. So I said to Calvin, who examined you? He said it was Dr. James Harder who came down. He wasn't a medical doctor. He just said, let's strip off and have a look, you know. And they stripped down to their underwear, and that's mentioned in this document. You know, their 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 wedding tackle, as we call it in England, you know, wasn't was the only thing that he didn't look at. So about a year later, uh, the same chap at the Centre for UFO Studies who sent me this file sent me an email, and he said, "Philip, I've been going through some old files today. I assume you've got these." But I thought I'd send them anyway. I wasn't looking for these, by the way. I just came across them. But I'm sure you've got them. And these were the photographs to go with that document. And there's a photograph of Charlie Ixon's harm with these marks on it. And then you turn the photo over, it tells you Charles Ixon, 11th of October, 1973. And there's Calvin Parker's foot with these three marks underneath his foot. And again, on the back of the photograph is his name and the date. So you, here you have Calvin recounting his story. They all they, they always said right from the beginning that they, they they had some kind. They felt like they'd been injected. See, there you have, you know, Charlie Hickson's arm with these marks on it. 
they're fresh. You can see that. And lo and behold, you've got Calvin saying they've taken my shoes and socks off and they've stuck something in my foot and it hurts. And here you have a written description of these, and he puts in inverted commas, puncture wounds, and then a year later, the photographs appear as well. Wow. So, you know, each, (laughs) if you put each thing separately, doesn't mean a lot, but when you put it all together, you think, holy schmoly. You know, and we've had other witnesses come forward, Ryan. Again, just to be brief, again, another gentleman, Calvin was doing a book signing in in, in Pasagola. And this gentleman, elderly looking, came up, bought a book, said, thank you very much. By the way, I saw the UFO that night and (laughs) and he walked away. You know, Calvin didn't get his name, but fortunately somebody was taking photographs. So we got a photo of him buying the book. So again, I put it on social media and and um, a lady contacted me. She says, I know who that is. Uh, I said, well, can you ask him if I can speak to him? She come back and said, yeah, he'll speak to you. There was a chap called Lewis Lee, Mr. Lewis Lee. And he worked in the shipyard on the other side of the river. He says, mm-hmm. he was a crane driver. And he says, that night, Philip, I got into my cab. And he says, the cab's about, 10 or 12 feet off the ground. And he says, as soon as I got in the cab, I could see this thing over the river. And he said, you've never seen anything like it. I can't do a Mississippi accent. I'm, I'm sorry, Ryan. I'm, you know. Fair enough. He, he says, it's the darndest thing you've ever seen. And he's watching it and watching it. And then his friend shouts him because he's got something on the end of his crane, like, you know, what are you doing? (laughs) So he turned away to see to what, to his job. And he said, when I turned back, it was gone. And he said, I told my family about it. It's about, I've never not told anybody. Just who who, who the hell do you tell it to? And that's just one other example. uh, And others have come forward. It left right and center in 1973. They all saw Charlie and Calvin on the TV or in the newspaper. Basically people poking fun at them. But the media today, when Calvin came out of the woodwork and wrote his two books, treated him with respect, didn't poke fun at him. So I think in turn, that's, that, that encouraged others. Plus that are of an age now where some of them don't, just couldn't care less what anybody thinks anyway, you know. And 1977, sorry, 1973 when this happened, he's not eons ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I left high school the year after, and I'm still here. So there's a lot of people in their 60s and 70s who were around at that time and have now told their stories. And we, you know, even just just recently, we interviewed Eddie Hickson, who is Charlie Hickson's eldest son. Mm-hmm. Um, Eddie didn't see anything at the time, but they did witness some things later. Eddie had just gone to Vietnam in the military. 10 days before this incident happened. And he said, had I not been in the military, Philip, I'd have been there that night because he knew Calvin. They grew up together. You know, he said, I'd have been there fishing with him. And, um, you know, so we have a full interview with him as well. And he talks about how it affected his father, scared the living daylights out of his mum for the rest of her life. She was always looking over her shoulder. Like, what if, what if, you know, um, so there's a lot. So Dr. Irina Scott and I have worked on this. She's in Ohio. 
I would be lost without her, Ryan, to be perfectly honest. And um, we intend to publish this, all of this. And there's a lot more to it next year because it's the 50th anniversary. So it, it just seems the right time to do it. And Perfect. It, it's come, you know, the case found international recognition back in 1973. It then died again. It was gone. People had forgotten about it. When I looked, when I, I'll give you an example. When I first started to look for Calvin Parker, I contacted a UFO researcher in Mississippi. Seemed to be the obvious thing to do. Yeah. He'd, he'd never heard of it. Oh, never wow. heard of it. He just sent me some links that he'd found online. I said, well, I can find links. I don't want links. I want his phone number, you right. know. <laughs> and th this is where modern technology comes in. It was a, a podcaster. You probably know him, Martin Willis. Of course, yeah. Martin had interviewed Calvin back in 2013. He says, uh, I think I've got his email. I don't oh, know if it wow. still works. So it was Martin who introduced me and Calvin Parker. That's amazing. And I'm hey. forever, I've, I've thanked him numerous times, but I'm forever, <laughs> forever thankful. But. Right. Uh, who says podcasts don't uh, add to the to the research and investigation? Absolutely, they right? do. Absolutely, <laughs> they do. And there's a prime example, you know. Absolutely. And you know, Calvin and I, we're, in fact, we're talking this morning. We, we speak regularly. We become friends, and we never know what's going to happen next. I mean, that the, the uh, a local charity in the town, for example raised some money, and I've put a historical marker at the location where this thing happened. Mm. And it was officially unveiled by the mayor. You know, and all that happened. Calvin was stood by it when they unveiled it. He was crying, you know. And it, it is a fascinating story. It, it really is. And it's one that continues to give. There's, you know, there's more things out there. And, and we will see where it all ends up. But it's a fascinating account. Calvin's books are available. Um, Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, that's his first one. And um, Pascagoula, The Story Continues, is the second one. And Dr. Irina Scott got her own book called Beyond Pascagoula, The Rest of the Amazing Story, because she is a bona fide scientist. And lo and behold, there's another aspect to the story. She was She's from Ohio. She, in, on October the 11th, 1973, she was away from home studying for her, I believe it was her PhD, when her mother phoned her. And she says there's been a huge sonic boom. And this sonic boom went halfway across the United States. And that was on the 11th of October, 1973. Oh, and wow. she's never been able to find a rational explanation for this sonic boom. She's looked into everything. It's recorded on, you know, seismic measurements. She claims, and I believe her, because she's the scientist, not me, it is the second loudest noise ever recorded on Earth. Oh. And it all and happened it, at the same... Now, now, whether it's connected to, to, to the Pascagoula incident, I don't know. Right. I don't know. But it was the but, same same night. Interesting, half, nonetheless, if you, yeah. if you hear an aircraft... You know, a jet aircraft do a sonic boom. The radius of, of the, the where you can hear it is about two miles. Mm -hmm. So it'll give you some exact. The higher the, the, the jet goes, 
the less distance you can hear it because the atmosphere gets thinner, so mm. the sound waves don't travel so far. Therefore, it diminishes the higher it gets. This went halfway across the United States. Whew. Yeah, that's almost unimaginable then. Yeah, what, and it was, that that, it was that that got Irina interested. And okay. um, yeah, so there you go. So that's an update on the Pascagoula case. There's a lot more, but we, we could literally be here all night talking about it. <laughs> no, let's wait for the book. Oh, I'm so excited for that, for sure. Well, I mean, to wrap things up, Philip, um, where can we find your book, the new book, where can we find everything you're up to? And uh, yeah, tell the folks at home how they can find you, if you don't mind. Yeah, the new book is, is a simple title, uh, UFO Landings UK. You'll find it on Amazon. It's There's a, a large format softback book. There's a, a hardback. There's a, a Kindle. And we're in the process of turning it into a, an audio book as well. So that'll be ready at some point. And... Um, you know, all, you know, I've written a few other books, but they're all there. You just punch my name into Amazon, you, you'll find them. I have a, a, a little blog, although I don't write a lot on it. I just put bits and pieces on it. That's just flyingdispress.com. That's disc with a K. I'm on, I'm on Facebook. I'm easy enough to find. You never forget this fat old boy's face once you've seen it, will you? <laughs> oh, stop. <laughs> well, we've got your uh, your Twitter Twitter handle down there yeah. as well if folks yeah. want to reach out to you there. Um, well, this has been absolutely fascinating, Philip. I'm so happy I finally got to talk to you. I know it was a long time coming, but we covered so much. And I, I'm being honest, I cannot wait for that new book to come out on Pascagoula to see what you guys have discussed. Well, I, li- I literally added the Eddie Hickson interview to the manuscript this morning. And unless anything else comes up, that will be the last thing. I'm going to try and speak to Eddie over the next few days just to see if he's got any old photographs of his, his you know, himself and his, his father yeah. um, that we can, that we might be able to use. Uh, but that's all. I, I, you know, the interview's done. It's in. And like I say, um, look out for it later this year. Uh, October, November time, Calvin, Mrs. Blair, Deputy Glenn Ryder, and another witness called Judy Branning, along with Waynette, Calvin's wife, have done a They're all featuring in a 30-minute documentary made by Sky. Not Sky, Fox, I beg your pardon, Fox Nation. Okay. And it's part of a series, and it goes out October, November. When I get more details, I'll let you know. But so they're all featured briefly, you know, in this little 30 minute documentary, but it'll give you a a little taster of what, what we've been, what we've been talking about. There is a lot more, but that, that, that'll hopefully, I mean, others, other people might come forward as a result, right? right? You never know, but that, that'll be out later this year. And, um, and the book next year at some point, all being well. Fantastic. Well, Philip, I have to thank you for coming on Somewhere in the Skies today and for all the invaluable work you do in this field. It's truly an honor to talk to you. Uh, it's my pleasure, Ryan. I, I can assure you. Yeah, and uh, let's not leave it so long till next time we speak. Absolutely. Absolutely.
Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.